Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Today for Spirit in Action, we have the great privilege of welcoming two fearless workers for something we could all use more of, happiness. The Happiness Initiative is an effort to apply the tools of science to get us moving the right direction. It helps us really sort out what helps and hurts our quality of life. John DeGraff has created more than 15 PBS specials, including the well-known Affluenza. He's the executive director of Take Back Your Time, and John DeGraff is on the board of the Earth Island Institute. Also joining us is Laura Musikansky, Executive Director of Sustainable Seattle. Laura is a lawyer with an MBA and has worked with a number of organizations, large and small, to address sustainability issues, including McDonald's, Chevron's, and many more. John DeGraff and Laura Musikansky are part of the staff of the Happiness Initiative, launched from Seattle and working now with folks in Oregon, Iowa, Vermont, and in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. In fact, John will be visiting my fair city on September 22nd to help along Eau Claire's implementation of the Happiness Initiative. And what about your city, town, or state? Listen to what John and Laura have to say and then contact them via happycounts.org or follow the link from northernspiritradio.org. John DeGraff and Laura Musikansky join us by phone from Seattle. John and Laura, welcome to Spirit in Action. Good to be on your show. Thank you. And Laura, I understand that just this morning you climbed a mountain. And that's not something everybody else does before breakfast or around that time. What's this about? Um, This is part of my time balance. This is how I am passionate and dedicated to this project, and I know my personality. I have a tendency to just zero in on something that I'm passionate about and do that. So I carve out some mornings to go out and be with nature, and that's one of the places where I find find great spirit there. And so, John, is it fair to assume that you have some time when you're not in the office working and advancing the cause of happiness? Well, I hope so. Uh, Lately, it seems like I've been spending a lot of time in the office, but no, I I do, and I I get out too, and I don't run up vertical mountains the way Laura does these days, but I love to spend time uh, outdoors here in in the Seattle area. We have a a lot of wonderful natural locations and things to do that, and so I like to do the same. I like to hike and, and so forth. Well, I'll say, Mark, that we've been having a few celebrations lately because John has his birthday, and I won't say the number. I'll let him say the number, but it's a big birthday, so we have been taking some time off to celebrate, and I think that's another important piece to celebrate everything that happens and then to celebrate people. I will say I'm actually about to turn 65, and that's the time I, time I was told that I should be out on the golf course and retiring from all of these kinds of things. So the, the question is why in that circumstance would I be working longer hours 
than ever, and, and the real reason is because I'm very, very excited about the project that Laura and I are involved with, and I have great passion for it. I have the hope that it can help change the world in a positive direction, and that's what, I, what I've been doing for the previous, uh, at least uh, the years of my working life, and I want to keep going. Were you involved in such exploits before the movie Affluenza came out? Did you have a history preceding that significantly involved in this kind of concern? Absolutely. I actually lived in your part of the world. Uh, I lived in uh, Wisconsin, went to school in Wisconsin. I worked as a VISTA volunteer on the Bad River Chippewa Reservation near Ashland for a couple of years, was very involved in sort of social justice and, and uh, Vietnam War movement things when I was on the campus. And so it was activism, actually, and my concerns for that that got me first into radio at the University of Minnesota Duluth radio station, and then into public television, where I spent many, many years, and I'm still there, making documentaries, one of which was Affluenza. And most of that work was kind of went into the ozone. I produced those documentaries, and people saw them, but I wasn't doing much with them until Affluenza. And then the interest in that really led me to getting back into activism again. And so I've come full circle now, and I think I'm doing a lot more activism today than I am television. Could you explain to me a little bit about happiness and your pursuit of it, the general topic and then the organization that both of you are active with? So when we talk about happiness, we certainly mean how you feel. That's a scientific terms aspect, like how often do you feel happy? And we certainly mean um, your satisfaction with life. So that's that question of, you know, if you had your life to do over again, would you would you do it differently? And are you do you feel like you're living a meaningful life? But as and maybe even perhaps more importantly, we're talking about the conditions of happiness. So when we're talking about the conditions of happiness, we're looking at the 10 domains of happiness, and these are informed by the work that's happening in Bhutan. And I'll name off a couple of them and give an example of what it means when you have a condition that can make you unhappy, and we use that term synonymously with well-being or quality of life or sustainability. So a couple of those conditions of happiness include good governance, a material well-being, and a quality environment, access to nature and a, a healthy environment. I'll give an example. John and I were giving one of our talks at a church, and we went through some of the survey questions and asked some people some questions, and then a few people came up with this idea that they had pretty much complete control over their happiness, that they could control their environment, they could do a lot to control their local government, et cetera, et cetera. Our response to that is that's wonderful that you're in that position, but that's not true for a lot of people in the world. And I gave the example of there's a woman on our board whose son-in-law is, um, in, he's not even in his middle ages, and he's dying of liver cancer, he's got heart problems, and he's got, he's got kidney cancer. He grew up next to a gas station. He's from the African-American community. You can't say that he has a lot of control over his environment, but you can say that he's probably not very happy. And what, I know that he's not very happy. So this is what we mean when we talk about the conditions of happiness. And then when we look at our own lives and look at our, the connection that we know that we have with everybody on this planet, whether that's through our purchasing or it's through our career decisions or our decisions about how we live our daily lives, that's that piece of looking at happiness and looking at the conditions of happiness for ourselves and for others and then that, that reach that we all could have. One of the things that I'm kind of wondering about and I imagine our listeners are wondering about is – is this happiness 
a fancy pants academic idea? Is it a just folks idea? Do they meet somewhere? I'm aware that there's a lot of people in our world who will not take actions unless you've got academic backing for whatever you said. And I'm also aware that there's been a vast increase in studies around happiness and leisure and all this. I didn't even know that there was such a post in college as leisure studies. Could you fill that in a little bit? Can I take that one on? I would just say, you take the long answer and I'll take the short answer. The short answer is yes, yes, and yes. John, you go ahead and explain. (laughs) (laughs) As far as leisure studies, it was an important thing. Uh, The leisure studies really started in the 1960s when we were told in America, and I remember this from a class at the University of Wisconsin, that by the year 2000, with automation and technology changes and everything, we'd be working 15 to 20 hours a week. We'd have 8 to 10 weeks of vacation a year. We'd have more leisure time on our hands than we would know what to do with. And even then, I thought it was a problem I could deal with, but... We didn't get that problem, and in fact, we've ended up working harder and longer than before, and so actually some of these recreation and leisure departments are are being closed down. I think that's a terrible mistake, especially because our happiness survey shows, and many happiness surveys that are being done, show that one of the domains, and maybe the domain where Americans fare worst of the 10 domains that Laura mentioned, is the domain of time balance. Our scores were the lowest in that. People feel very, very stressed and pressed for time. And that is a condition of well-being. It's a condition of happiness that is understood in the, in the science that, you know, you really time for things like social connection, which is absolutely important to happiness, for things like health, for things like participating in, in your community, all of these kind of things, getting out into nature. One thing that all of these things require is a common denominator is enough time to do them. So I, I very much agree with Laura's description of happiness and of the domains, and there are a number more. And the idea is that we need to talk about where we're hurting in this country in terms of people not being able to meet the conditions of happiness and what kind of policy changes, personal changes, and organizational changes we might use to improve those conditions for everybody so that we all have the right, we all have equal opportunity for the pursuit of happiness, as Thomas Jefferson put it. I would add that where does that question go about the academics, the grassroots, and where they meet in the middle? Where does that apply to our project, the Happiness Initiative? So we have a survey and objective indicators, and the survey is developed by well-being or happiness scientists so that the questions reveal results that are academically rigorous. From there, we look at how can this be a grassroots project, and what we've tried to do is we've tried to develop a happiness initiative so anybody can conduct a happiness initiative, so anybody can can grab that survey, can grab those objective indicators, and find the data, and be able to put together a happiness report card for their community, whether that's a small community such as a neighborhood or a business or a town or a city. And then from there, they can start looking at what are some of the actions that we need to be taking, as John mentioned, as individuals, as organizations, and as policymakers that are going to improve our well-being. Looking very broadly at well-being, I'm looking at those interconnections. And one thing, Mark, on this is that your city, Eau Claire, where you're based, is one of the first cities that's really taking this on in a big way. We're very excited to report that we've had some wonderful conversations with the city manager, Mike Huggins, there in Eau Claire, 
with folks from uh, the University of Wisconsin and Eau Claire from the Clear Vision Eau Claire organization. And they are going to launch there in the City of Happiness Initiative for Eau Claire in October, and we're going to be working with them on that. So that's a very exciting thing. I've been to Eau Claire many times. I know that it's a wonderful town, but every wonderful town has its weaknesses and things that can be improved. And I think it's exciting that your town is taking this on. I'm pretty excited about it, too. Is it hard to get acceptance of this? I think when you talk about numbers, you know, we can talk about what the gross national product is. People can latch there, okay, this number is bigger than this number. When you talk about happiness as a measure, I'm sure a lot of people think that perhaps you've been smoking something. Well, then, I mean, I mean, the answer is going to be yes and no. So let's answer first the no part. So the United Nations adopted a resolution on July 19th of this year that asks countries to use happiness, to start finding ways to measure happiness. And as we know in the UK, as well as in France, those leaders are starting to measure happiness, and they've actually called on all world leaders to measure happiness rather than just gross domestic product. Now, they're not saying that gross domestic product doesn't matter. They're saying that let's look at other things as well. And we're seeing now China looking at saying something like, well, we also are going to start measuring happiness, gross domestic happiness, rather than just gross domestic product, as well as Brazil. So in the U.S., we do and will continue to get some skepticism, and for various reasons, which John can go into. But globally, this is an important trend that's happening. and We expect the U.S. to be lagging in adopting this trend, but sometimes there's some value in that that you can learn from your neighbors. So, John, did you want to talk about the skepticism and how we address that? Well, we do get skepticism, people saying, oh, happiness, well, what's that about, and uh, and so forth. But we, we do need to remind people that this is the basis on which our country was founded, that the Declaration of Independence itself says that what it's all about is the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Thomas Jefferson, who who wrote those words, was very specific in many, many other ways. He said on many occasions that the pursuit of happiness or making possible the conditions of happiness was the sole or only purpose of government. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was very, very clear about that. So this isn't some wild idea or just exotic idea from a country like Bhutan. This is part of our American tradition. The difference between now and Jefferson's time is that we actually have really excellent tools to measure happiness and well-being that have been developed through the science over the last number Number of years, and Gallup in particular does an international Gallup Healthways survey of more than 150 countries annually, a thousand people in each of those countries, a thousand a day actually in the United States are asked a series of questions about their well-being or their happiness, and Gallup is able to plot how well each of these countries are doing, how well our states are doing, how well some of our cities are doing, at least for the major realm of you know overall well-being. What our survey and our work does is it takes that a lot deeper. It goes into some of the reasons why people may be more or less happy, and it gives people the opportunity to engage in that conversation themselves and to think about these questions and to think about their own lives in a way that they can't really get from a Gallup poll. But Gallup is doing very important work along these lines, and you can measure happiness. So what are some of the numbers? What historically are we like? Are What are the happy areas of the U.S. or internationally? Where do we want to go if we want to be happy? Or what do we do? Well, if we look at the United States, we get some, you know, it doesn't seem like a big difference in that the scores for happiness in the happiest state, which just happens to be Hawaii, 
and there there are a number of others. Actually, North Dakota has risen rather rapidly in this in this ranking. Uh, the score in Hawaii is 71. The score in the least happy state in the United States is 61 out of 100. That happens to be West Virginia. But one thing that we do see is that some of the happier states tend to be in the, in the West and the upper Midwest and those places. Some of the lowest scores tend to be in uh, Appalachia and, the, and in the southern states and so forth. Now, if we look around the world, the picture that emerges is a fairly clear one, and that is that the highest scores consistently are in the Nordic or Scandinavian countries and the Northern European countries. Denmark stands out as being at the top of the list year after year with Sweden, Norway, Finland, and the Netherlands not far behind. The U.S. does pretty well. We're generally in the top 20, although a recent World Values survey ranked us as 23rd, so a little bit below that. But according to Gallup, we're generally in the top 20 for satisfaction with life, and that's a pretty good score. Gallup also measures what we call positive affect, and it's just kind of with your feeling directly now, not not your overall satisfaction with life, but, but in the last day, how much sadness did you feel, how much joy, how much anger, how much stress, and so forth. And when it comes to that, the United States actually does considerably less well and the best countries in the world are countries like Costa Rica and things for that. The United States, in fact, does so poorly on some of these numbers that when Gallup looks at self-reported stress around the world, Gallup finds that the United States ranks 145th out of 151 countries measured. That is, people in only six other countries report more stress than Americans report. And that's a very alarming thing because that stress leads to health impacts. It leads to all kinds of other negative implications for our society. We also rank very poorly when it comes to having a lot of anger, having a lot of worry and anxiety, and feeling frequently sad. Americans don't do so well in these numbers. Overall satisfaction with life, though, we do pretty well. On this reporting about happiness, how much of it is subjective? And that is, I mean, I, I assume it's all subjective in one way or another, but I imagine in the United States, we think we're happy because we're supposed to be happy. That is, we think we've got the most money and we've got the best country in the world and therefore we're supposed to be happy. Does that second indicator you talked about kind of filter that out, how much stress people have had in the past day? The question is how subjective is the survey? I think that is that the question mark. How much of it's subjective, and how much? What does that subjectivity mean? Yeah, and how much we trust? Because really, what we want to do is make sure people's lives are better. Certainly, their subjective experience of their life is part of that. But also, if they're dying earlier, I don't know if you put other factors like that in there. What's the infant mortality rate, etc. Right. So let's look at the difference between objective and a subjective indicator. So an objective indicator would be something like air quality or greenhouse gas emissions, and a subjective indicator would be something like what percentage of the population expects that their children will have far fewer occasions and access to nature or occasions to be able to enjoy nature. So an objective indicator would be life expectancy, and a subjective indicator would be something like, do you feel like you are able to live your life or that you're, you're unable to live your life because of health concerns? Just enjoy your life, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and Laura gets at that. I mean, there's just a number of these kind of things. You know, the, on the time balance question, that's another one. I mean, the subjective questions ask people, you know, how much of your time can you spend doing the things that you want to do? How stressed do you feel? How pressed for time? Does your life feel like a race? You know, these kinds of questions. 
the objective data tells us actually what kind of long hours people are working, whether they have leisure time and so forth. So we combine the two because we really believe both are necessary. The objective indicators, the real information, policymakers need to know what the facts are, but they also need to know how their citizens are perceiving those facts and how they're perceiving their, their life. And, and that's what this does. It gives the opportunity to look at both of those kind of things in all of the domains that we measure. And so that that's what the science of well-being is saying, is that the policymakers are really, really need this to be able to get a temperature of their constituents and to see what do their constituents perceive. So then that goes to, well, what kind of subjective data are you gathering? And, you know, what does it mean if, if it's just a bunch of survey results? Well, when you have enough survey results of your constituency, then you do have a good idea of how well your city, the city of Eau Claire, or the city of Seattle is doing. But it also depends on what kind of questions you ask. So are you asking questions like, do you want to be able to volunteer more? Or in the last month, how often did you volunteer? But latter kind of question is telling you is giving you pretty hard data about people. And the former question is giving you something that's more, maybe a little harder to put your finger on. Both of them are needed, and you'll see both of them in the survey. When you go online to happycounts.org and then punch that orange button, you'll see both of them. But you can see how when you get enough people taking the survey so that you can say that you think you have something close to a representative survey, which, you know, of course, it would be wonderful if you could just go ahead and pay for a representative survey, and we would love to have the funding for that if somebody wants to provide that. But when you get enough people taking the survey, you can get some pretty important information about how Eau Claire is doing. We're speaking today to John DeGraff and Laura Musikansky. They're both part of the Happiness Initiative. Go to the website happycounts.org, and you can find out more about each of them at a couple other sites. Laura's active with sustainableseattle.org. John is executive director of Take Back Your Time. Their website is timeday.org. If you go to Happy Counts, hopefully you'll find links in both directions for these hardworking people who are working so hard to make sure that we take our proper leisure time to have mental, physical, and emotional, spiritual, all, all of the, the happiness is really in so many different domains. Right, and we're we're building that part right now. We're building the the piece, the science of happiness, what the science says, what are some of the activities science says will make you happier or will lead to a happier and more balanced life. And then just suggestions from people what they do to have a happier life. So this is a relatively new project, but some of those those aspects, we'd like to have those be more robust. Now, some of the things we know, Mark, from happiness science is that actually much of that science confirms the teachings of our world's great spiritual or religious traditions. So, for example, the adage in the, in the Christian tradition that it's better to give than to receive, or in the Judeo-Christian tradition that it's better to give than to receive, is absolutely backed up by the happiness science in that people who are generous with their time and their money and so forth tend to be considerably happier than those who are seeking those things solely for themselves. In fact, the researchers do all kinds of wonderful studies around this. John Hallowell, who's one of the leading researchers in the world on happiness at the University of British Columbia, does a, an annual thing where he gives students in the class, they each get 10 bucks. Uh, all the students, and half of them are told to spend that money on themselves, and half of them are told to spend it on some kind of other cause, a charity, give it away figure out what to do with it, either together as a group or individually. And very consistently, once that happens, the people who actually gave the money away, who put it into something, report consistently higher well-being. That's the trend that we see all along. So there's a great confirmation of altruism, of caring, of sharing, 
of justice in the happiness research of more egalitarian traditions. There's definitely uh, studies that have come out recently from the University of Virginia showing higher happiness levels in parts of the United States where the gap between rich and poor is less serious. So we learn a lot and it tells us that these kind of spiritual traditions have quite a bit to offer and that the science confirms those things. Is there someone who doesn't want us to know how happy we are or aren't? Is there a vested interest in the opposite direction? I don't think I would say that there's a vested interest in the opposite direction. I'd say that, that we have, since the inception of the gross domestic product, we have used that so singularly. And as with any paradigm shift, there are going to be people who don't want to change their focus. Now, the gross domestic product is a really important measure, and it was conceived of for a really important purpose. It was conceived of in the Depression as a way to help people to get out of a really horrible place. And then it was used during World War II as a way to be able to manufacture the goods to defend a value that we went to war for. And most of my family was killed in that war in in Europe because of being Jewish. So, you know, I I don't believe in war, but I can see the value in that. But to be able to manufacture those, those munitions without starving people without putting people in a place where they just couldn't even meet their basic needs. So that's that's actually a really valuable tool. But then we decided to use it as a singular measure for everything, you know, for the greater good of everything. It doesn't work in that way, as Laura points out. And Robert Kennedy was one of the first to make that clear. You know, he he said that the gross national product really measured everything except that which makes life worthwhile. For example, as Laura points out, there are many things that add to this thing called GD. Now we call it uh, gross domestic product ever since 1991. But a lot of the things that go into this, anything really that money is spent on in the economy in the year. So if you have uh, an oil spill and it requires expensive cleanup operations and so forth, that actually adds more to the GDP than if the oil made it successfully to the port. If you have cancer and it requires expensive treatments and poor health that requires ex- expensive treatments, it adds to the GDP. If you have divorce and family breakdown, which means people have to have two homes instead of one, there are expensive legal bills. All of that adds to the GDP. On the other hand, things that we know are really good for happiness, for health, for all of these things, going out and taking a walk like Laura did in the woods today, that's great for happiness and for health, but it doesn't add one whit. It's a waste of time as far as the GDP is concerned, volunteering in, in your community, taking care of your own children. All of those kind of things don't count. And so what we're saying is that all of those things need to count because they are really about what makes us happy and healthy, what really adds to our well-being in the long run. GDP tells us some things that are valuable, but it is not enough. And, and we think that America needs this big conversation about broader measures of happiness. And there are people who will resist that, who think that it's soft, you know, that it's fuzzy, those kind of things. There are also people who will not be happy with some of the basic happiness science, which actually shows us that extreme individualism is not good for happiness, that we are social people, that we need social connection and all of those kind of things. So an extremely competitive individualistic society can be very hard on people's happiness and and on health. And that's something that some people don't want to hear that message. Well, and particularly in a time when we're having economic crises one after the other, the tendency is to just go back and try to rebuild the economy. And, and you know, I mean, you know the quote by Einstein that's saying you can't change something with the same thinking that created the problem. But how hard is it to actually follow that? I mean, 
you see it in yourself. So you're trying to change some kind of pattern and you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So we're hoping that, you know, John mentioned Kennedy as citing the problem of GDP, but even the guy who created the measure of gross national product, which is not gross domestic product, Simon Kunitz, I mean, he said, and I quote him, the welfare of a nation can therefore scarcely be inferred from a measure of national income. I mean, even he knew that this was not the right measure for guiding a nation and for guiding organizations or for guiding ourselves. And we know that inherently. When we only grade ourselves on how much money we make, and that's the only thing that matters, are we happy? I mean, you can't take it with you. Are you really happy just because you've made a bunch of money today? We also know from the science, uh, particularly from the work of Tim Kasser and Richard Ryan, two prominent American psychologists, that people whose primary motivation is the amassing of stuff, that is, who go out and get the job because that job will give them the highest income and all of these kind of things, are much less happy than people whose primary motivation is making a difference and sharing and using their skills to benefit society as a whole. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be rich and happy. There are people who give their skills to the good of society and end up also being rich, and they're quite happy at the same time, and they often give a considerable amount of their money away. But the people whose primary motivation is just making more and more and more money, in some ways they're never happy because they can never have enough. They will never be Bill Gates unless they're Bill Gates. And so there's always the idea of scarcity, of never enough, and, and those people tend to be less happy. That's what the science shows. There's no question about it. There are in good indicators that as your income rises, your happiness may or may not rise with it. What is the overview of how that actually interacts? So we actually, our survey has, we have about 7,200 people took the survey, and we're analyzing the results now. And the science says that over a certain amount, and that that amount can vary between about 75 to 80,000 individual per individual, right? So if you have a, a family of 12 making 80,000, it's not the same thing as an individual person. Well, it is for but, family size, but it's yeah, kind of a family but, of four. Yeah. yeah, but for that much, as you increase the amount of money that you make, you're not that much happier. Now, when you're below that, you're a heck of a lot happier. I grew up really, really poor. We didn't have enough money to meet, make ends meet by the end of the month, the last two months, because the months were um, pretty scarce. There wasn't really much food around at all. I remember when my uncle died, we got a little inheritance. We got about $5,000. We were a whole lot happier. <laughs> we had fruit and vegetables for like six months. <laughs> And we actually were able to like do go out and do some leisure activities, like go to a movie, which we just didn't have enough money to do. So when you are living below that level and, and well below that level, which I've experienced in my childhood, more money makes you a heck of a lot happier. <laughs> so we don't ignore that. The science kind of shows us that wealthier people in any society overall tend to be somewhat more satisfied, not always higher in, in, in affect, but more satisfied overall than poorer people in that society. But what the science also shows us is that as society's income as a whole rises, people beyond a certain point, people in general are not any happier. So the United States has increased the size of its gross domestic product has more than tripled, for instance, since the mid-1950s. And yet happiness levels in the United States overall remain totally flat. And the downside is that, in fact, rates of depression and anxiety and the mental illness have actually increased considerably during that time period. So the idea is that if society's aim is just getting richer and richer and richer, it doesn't do much 
for people. Individuals may benefit because they compare their satisfaction with life with those who are poor and so forth, and so it looks a little better. But the point is there are many other things that are far more important, and, and we understand that for whether you're going to be happy or not. Having friends, having social connection, feeling that you make a contribution to others and to the community, being generous, having good health, having that kind of access and to get outdoors in, in nature and let its charms affect you, having enough educational opportunity so that you become more and more curious about things and that you can learn from things. All of these things are actually more important than simply making more money. The statement about the increase in, in mental illness and depression, et cetera, is I think that's really an important thing to understand around when we say something like that. We're not saying that, you know, oh, mental illness has increased or depression has increased. We're saying that the conditions that create this, that add to this, those conditions have worsened so that there's an increase in the mental illness. And that's something that we can, we're all responsible for together and we can all do something about together. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, host of this Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. If you go to the site, you'll find our archives of the past six years, links to our guests, like to John DeGraff and Laura Musikansky. Happinesscounts.org is a good place to find out information about the Happiness Initiative. You'll also find a place to leave comments. You can comment on particular shows or in general, and we love hearing from you. It helps us get the feedback that we need to make a better program for you. As I said, we're speaking with John DeGraff and Laura Musikansky of the Happiness Initiative. One thing I'd like us to move toward right now is talking a little bit about the spiritual or maybe religious. That could be part of the formula the effects that spirituality, religion has in conjunction with happiness. I think, John, you have to start out by talking about Bhutan, because I think they're the, the key, the linchpin, the launching pad. Yeah, well, in a sense, Bhutan's Growth National Happiness Initiative does come out of its Buddhist tradition, and that concern which the king expressed when he was asked, uh, the young king, Jigmi Wangchuk, in 1972, he was crowned at the age of 16 upon the death of his father. And he was asked, uh, the story goes, and it may be partly apocryphal, but, but the story goes that he was asked by an Australian reporter, so, King Wong Chuck, what are you going to do to increase your country's gross national product? And King Wong Chuck thought about this for a minute, and he said, well, frankly, I think that gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. And, of course, this concern about happiness comes out of that Buddhist tradition. But I think it's also part of our other traditions, and I think the happiness studies show that there is a connection between spirituality, however you want to look at it, and happiness. It's sometimes hard to know exactly what that connection is. For example, we we know that people who are members of religious congregations who attend church tend to be, all other things being equal, slightly happier than people who are not. What we don't know is exactly what the cause of that is. We're not sure whether that's because they have more of a purpose in life, which is shared by many other people who are not religious. That's probably part of it. Or whether it's that they have a, t a tendency to get more social connection from the people that they know in church and those kind of opportunities that come together because we know how important social connection is for happiness. So the real issue here, though, is that it's just not about the money and the spiritual sense that life is bigger than you, that you have a, a role to play to contribute to the welfare of others, to the well-being of the whole of creation. Uh, all of that is very important for happiness. 
And Laura, I'm sure you have something to add to that. Well, that question always stumps me a little bit because we don't have a question in there that says anything directly about spirituality. And we do have questions that ask you, are you spending time at a community organization? So that includes a church. I think the questions for me that speak to this are the questions at the very beginning around satisfaction with life that ask you things like the conditions of my life or how are the conditions of your life? Are you satisfied with your life? Have you gotten the most important things that you want with your life? And if you could you live your life over, would you change anything? And those are the kind of questions that I think get people to sort of probe and think, well, what is important to me? What do I really want out of life? And I think that, I'll just say, for me personally, being raised by a, a victim of, of World War II, my grandfather had spent the war in a camp, and my father had escaped to England, but had lived through three bombings. I was raised that there was no God, because if there were, then how could that have happened? And it took me into my adulthood to recognize that there was spirit, that there was something like God. And then from there, to be able to, de- to more fully develop a system of values and a purpose in my life. So I think that when we ask these kinds of questions, and that's an iterative process, right? I mean, finding spirit, finding spirituality, finding God, it's, an iter- it, it's not like you just find it, bang, you're there, and all of a sudden you get guided by a light forever and everything's just set. It's part of personal growth. You're always finding a deeper, deeper connection to spirit. So I think, to me, this survey asks these kinds of questions like, you know, if you could live your life over, would you change something? You know, what you're living the best possible life for yourself? Those kind of questions, they're probing you, they're asking you. And I think that's something that can drive people to a greater connection with spirituality. And the other part of it is the, the holistic nature of it. So we talked about the, the ten domains of happiness. And asking, I want to go through those now because we did earlier, but asking people questions about that, I think, can lead to a greater understanding of our connection to each other and to spirit. So those ten domains of happiness, I mentioned the first ones as being material or being good governance in a healthy environment and access to nature. And then there's psychological well-being and physical health and time balance and then work experience. And then the three others are the community, your community vitality, your culture, and then education and capacity building. So when you look at your world in that kind of context, I think you're starting to see a connection there. We also do ask questions that relate to this along the same line that Laura's talking about that are very specific, saying, you know, do you have a sense of meaning in your life? Does life have a purpose for you? You know, do you feel like you're doing things for a reason? These are spiritual questions, ultimately. So I, I think we get at it this way without asking questions about uh, particular spiritual traditions and so forth. Now, Bhutan's own questionnaire, which is started out, which much of ours is drawn from aspects of Bhutan's original questionnaire, that questionnaire takes about four hours to complete, and one woman fainted while doing it. And it contains certain questions that are very culturally and specific and spiritually specific to Buddhism and to Bhutan. Our survey does not do that. We're in a much more secular society. We want to make sure that everybody's concerns are, are understood. Is Bhutan happier than us? They must have a high quotient since they've got a department that focuses on it. Bhutan is not happier than than us, and the Bhutanese would never claim that, although occasionally you see in media things, oh, Bhutan, the world's happiest country. Bhutan has never claimed to be the world's happiest country. It's a very poor country. It has other kinds of things that are still hard for people without any question. It's dealing with a rather sudden transition to westernization, to all of the influences of Western products and electronics and all of that stuff in the, in the capital and the impact of that on its children. 
But Bhutan is becoming a much happier country, and it's becoming a much more literate, much more healthy country. It is making enormous strides. So Bhutan is considering Bhutan's level of wealth overall. Bhutan is certainly probably the happiest country in the world that is as poor as Bhutan, without any, any question. But, you know, it is tough for a country that has the problems that Bhutan faces to compete for overall life satisfaction with the Denmark or United States, for that matter. Exactly how much happier are the Scandinavian countries than us, Denmark being number one? Percentage-wise, is it a significant difference? It's a pretty significant difference. It's about the difference between the highest and lowest American state, you know. So if you look at the scores for Denmark, they tend to be in the low 80s overall for life satisfaction. The U.S. scores tend to be in the high 60s and low 70s. So that's a fairly significant difference. The world's happiest city, according to Gallup, is a city called Aarhus in Denmark, where the average uh, happiness rating is 85. And Dan Butner, who's in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, a popular author, author of the book Blue Zones about health and the book Thrive about happiness, has gone to a number of places to find out why that is. And he reports in that book quite a bit about Denmark and his visit to the city of Aarhus. So the the differences may not seem that big, but actually a a difference in a population of 10 points is quite significant to happiness researchers. So the world's happiest countries like Denmark score in the high 70s and low 80s. The world's least happy countries, which tend to be sub-Saharan African countries, tend to score in the high 40s and low 50s, and, th- and that's a very significant difference. Bhutan, as a country, is uh, scoring in the mid to high 60s, so it's almost up with the U.S. It's pretty high, but it's obviously still not quite there. It's a poor country. One of the things that you've mentioned a couple times along the way was that comparative poverty, the differences in distribution of wealth, rich people next to poor people, ends up affecting how happy people apparently seem to be or not. There was something on Fox News recently. They were talking about how poor people in the United States weren't really poor because a high percentage of them have a refrigerator, a microwave oven, a TV, etc., could you talk about how that plays into this happiness studies, How what the relationship is? Yeah, well, you know, just having these things is not, it doesn't play that much into happiness. Certainly, if you don't have some of the basics, then as Laura put it, you're going to be very, very unhappy. But much of this, of happiness, is a comparative process. It's looking at what the expectations are in your society, how you compare to others, what access you have to what's taken as typical, normal by most people in your society. And so if you lack access to those kinds of things, even if you have way more, obviously, as a poor American than an average Bhutanese person has, you're not as happy because you're really making comparisons to the average state of the society, the material opportunities that exist for people in that society and other opportunities. One of the things that we're trying to do also is to redefine in some ways the definition of social justice so that it includes all of these domains, access to all of these ways of pursuing happiness, all of these conditions, rather than simply the amount of money that people make. And we come back to Thomas Jefferson, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Do people not pursue happiness if they're unhappy? Or one of the things I think is the main problem is most people believe that money is happiness, so therefore they go buy a lottery ticket and do not improve their situation. Well, if they don't have enough money to make their basic needs, and you can 
see why people might do something like that if they feel like there's no other option. But you know, something that John talked about earlier is that piece of, of consumption and is greater consumption leading us to greater happiness. The elephant in the room is that we're running out of natural resources to create more consumption. And no matter how productive, more productive we are, we're just plain running out of resources. So one of the things that we're doing with this work in providing the information to the policymakers, to the organizations, to individuals, is we're facing the music. We're going to have to get by with less. The growth that we have seen in the economy has been borrowing from the future and using our resources in an unsustainable fashion. So that means that there's some indication that that growth is never going to happen again like that. So what does that mean? It means that we're going to have to find ways, different ways to define consumption, different ways to make ourselves happy. It may not be going to the mall anymore. It may be spending some time on the front porch with your neighbors. It probably will. (laughs) And so for yourselves, I assume looking at these studies, looking at how things happen in our society, how has it led you to individually to change your lives, John and Laura? Well, the main thing that the Happiness Survey has led me to do is work more of it. No, I'm I'm, I'm joking about that. But actually, it gives me a great sense of purpose and value in life to see this and to see that this sort of thing does have the possibility of getting us to think differently as a society. I've always, uh, I think, understood the importance of social connection of friends, and my friends mean very, very much to me. I am still close friends with probably two dozen people that I went to high school with. I think since I'm 65, that's a long time ago. So I, I think that indicates the degree to which I understand that friendship is really, really so important and social connection and giving. I mean, you know, Laura and I are doing this work as volunteers, so we don't want to do that forever, and we would certainly like to, to receive some financial remuneration for our work. But we do that because we, we understand that giving and making a difference in the society is important for happiness. For myself, I absolutely love this work, and I, no matter what happens, if we are complete failures or if you know we have a variation of, of our success, this time in my life has been phenomenal because of the people I'm working with, because of John and Eldon and, and Andrew and Jacqueline and Maureen. It's just amazing, amazing people to be working with on something that feels like it's just the right thing at the right time, and that piece of that we're not yet funded and are, are still 80% volunteer, it hurts but it's it's amazing work. But what are some of the changes that I've made personally in my life? I'm more conscientious of my time balance, and I know myself pretty well, so I do carve out those times to do things instead of, I think, people who are maybe a little more balanced <laughs> in just the way that they behave. They kind of stop working at five and go home to their families. I just have a tendency to get pretty passionate about things and stay with it. And then I'm also much more conscientious of some of the teachings of um, Daniel Kahneman, who is sort of the father of the the well-being, which is that you're about as happy as the people around you. So if you want to be happy, you need to be around people who are happy. And that's that's a really interesting one. It doesn't mean that you just give up on your friends who are mentally ill or your family members who are mentally ill or depressed, but it does mean that you need to be aware of the impact that being around people who are extremely unhappy will have on you and to take some measures for your own happiness. That's an interesting part of the journey for me. And I share with Laura the same thing. I mean, we do have a wonderful team, great people, and that's a huge part of it. 
not only are they pretty happy people, I, I think, but they're also committed and caring people, and all of that matters. And curious people, to me, to me, I mean, what keeps me going and excited about life and uh, just looking forward to every day is that through this project and through the work that I do, I'm just constantly learning, and I'm learning new things about the world. I'm learning new things about myself and others. That's an exciting process. I think far too many people stop that process far too early uh, uh, and get in a rut. I don't want to be in a rut, you know. I mean, my health isn't what it once was, but my mental health and my sense of being excited each day and of wanting to come and do things, they're absolutely unchanged. And I, I feel, you know, still feel like the like a 20-year-old a in the body of a 60-year-old, but <laughs> very excited about life. And this is part of that. One other little aspect that I've read about in preparing for this was the idea of vacation, that vacation matters, and that in the USA, we don't have a norm for vacation. You may start out with zero or maybe one week of vacation, as opposed to Europe, where the norm is four, five, or six weeks of vacation per year, in addition to all of the holidays. Do you two take vacation, and what would be a reasonable goal for the United States? Is there such a thing? You know, Kellogg did a, Kellogg's a company that makes material. They did something in the 30s where they actually kept people just work six hours a day, and they found that people were just as productive at six hours a day as they were at eight hours a day. And I'll say that my son-in-law, who's a Brazilian in Brazil, if you're working beyond eight hours, your boss comes and says, go home. If you don't take your vacation, you don't come to work. It's the law there. Yeah, I think Laura's right. We don't understand it enough. And, of course, this is a subject that's dear to me because I worked uh, on a campaign to try to get a national paid vacation law in the United States. And I don't know if you know this, Mark, but we're one of only a handful of countries in the entire world that don't have a law mandating paid vacation. The other four countries that don't are Burma, Nepal, Suriname, and Guyana. That's it. But somehow in this country, we don't think that vacation matters, and it does. The countries that are the happiest countries in the world, one of the things they all have in common is that they have among the shortest work hours in the world, the longest vacations. People are very time-balanced in those countries. There's a lot of emphasis on work-life balance. It matters. And it's so strange because 100 years ago, in 1910, our conservative Republican president, William Howard Taft, said that Americans should have two to three months off a year for vacation. A conservative Republican said this, and some of the leading business people of the day said, well, he was a little crazy, but a month wouldn't be so bad. Now we somehow believe that it is shocking that people should have two weeks, three weeks off, and the median American vacation time now is slightly over a week paid. That is really that shocks people in every other country in the world. It's absolutely crazy. It's terrible for our health. It's terrible for our happiness. And yet we do it. In fact, it's gotten so bad that in the state of Idaho, next door to us in Washington, 30% of Idaho companies since the recession began have eliminated paid vacations. And in some companies, vacation is now being done by lottery. You know, a lottery decides whether you get a vacation or not. This is crazy. This is absolutely insane, and we need to speak up about this and say, this is not the way to health. It is not the way to happiness. It is not the way to a productive workforce. It doesn't do any good, and it needs to change. Well, I'm with you. <laughs> of course, I've made it a personal rule that I've taken vacation each year, and if they didn't provide paid vacation, I took unpaid vacation because there's so many important things in my life. I travel for at least 10 days or a couple weeks with a Quaker folk dance tour each year. There's uh, large gatherings I go to. 
those things are part of my mental and physical and spiritual health. I can't imagine how people get by without it. But then people make do with what they can do. And societally, there's a lot of rewards for not taking a vacation, for not taking a break, for working you know, incredibly long hours. Like society wants women to be 17 years old and 98 pounds and, you know, flawless, which has its own lack of beauty there. And they want us to work really, really hard and just not stop working. So that's something that we have to look within ourselves and look within our community to change, change our values. Yeah, one of the things that we do believe, Mark, and, and I probably think we're getting close in here of time, but one of the things I really do believe is that we have a lot to offer as Americans. We've had a lot to offer to the world over these years, but we also have a lot to learn from other people, especially about happiness and about the domains of happiness, and particularly in these areas like vacation. I just think we need to be much more open to learning from other people and from other countries because we really don't have all the answers what we need to start doing is asking the right questions and I believe that's what the happiness initiative does it asks the important questions about people's lives in all of the dimensions of their lives not just money and it engages every citizen who takes the survey in that personal question it gives them their own score so that they can actually see how well they're doing and it allows them to participate in something that can change policy and change the larger picture in our society so we are extremely excited about this project and what it does. And we're hoping to see thousands upon thousands of Americans take our new shorter survey when it comes out this fall in cities all over to see more and more cities do what Eau Claire is doing. We think Eau Claire will be a great model for other cities, and we're just excited about it. Happycounts.org is the website. We've been speaking with John DeGraff and Laura Musikansky, both part of the Happiness Initiative. Go to their site, happycounts.org, and you'll find out a lot more about that. Both of you, it's been great speaking with you. You've brought great happiness to my heart in just hearing you. And I want to leave you with a little bit of happiness yourself. It's a bumper sticker that you may or may not have run into. It said, if ignorance is bliss, why aren't more people happy? (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Today's Spirit in Action guests were John DeGraff and Laura Musikansky of The Happiness Initiative. Track them down via their site, happycounts.org, and get your area launched in The Happiness Initiative. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every